Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back, relax, while James brings you along on his cigar journey. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, sit down with guests from across the industry, and we'll probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This is part two, a continuation of the first part of our conversation with Nick Sears about the history of Cuba. This is part of our Cuban sub-series that we'll be doing all year long here in the year of our Lord, 2022. Uh, This episode, we discuss... uh, Well, we pick up where we left off after talking about Batista, and we're going to We're going to start with the one that we all know about, Fidel Castro and the revolution that happened in Cuba uh, mid-century, last century. But before we do, we're going to have a word from one of our fellow podcasters on the Creative Brain Candy Network. And I want to invite you to go to OxfordCigarCompany.com, use a coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES. That coupon code will get you 15% off your entire purchase, doesn't matter what's in your cart. Use coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES and receive 15% off. And we'll return mid-conversation with Nick Cirrus, owner of LH Cigars, after this word from Creative Brain Candy. Do you like true crime? Oh my god, Kat, you can't just ask people if they like murder. I'm curious. Well, curiosity killed the cat. Uh, does that make you curiosity? No, I'm Logan. And I'm Kat. And we're the hosts of the true crime comedy podcast, Spoiler They Die. One of us tells a story about a serial killer, a survivor, or basically anything morbid and scary. Also, we're Canadian, in case that matters to anyone. I don't think people listen to podcasts based on people being Canadian or not. People in our Discord server seem to care. Oh, sorry about that, eh? But thanks for listening to us panhandle. I'm Logan, and I approve this message. These people know nothing... Or they've been subjected. I don't. I don't want to make it sound like they know nothing but violence. They've just been subjected to violence and corruption since its inception. And, and this this revolution that we're going to talk about here for a few minutes it is no different with uh, uh, Fidel Castro. So let, let's talk about the rise uh, of Castro. Well, you know, Batista. The, the U.S. government, as I mentioned, was really a big backer of Batista. The country was flourishing. I mean, yeah, was he super corrupt? Was he a badass uh, dictator that everybody hated? Absolutely. And I mean, everybody hated. But the country was doing so well economically that Batista felt, you know, like he could just do no wrong and that the people loved him. But they didn't, of course. And a certain rebel leader by the name of Fidel Castro in 1953 stages a failed coup. Now, this, you know, led to a total unsuccessful revolt against Batista. Castro is put in jail. And this is where he really screwed up. 
Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> he felt so, he was just so cocky thinking, man, you know what? The people have to love me, man. Everything is going great. This, the country just was flush with cash. Uh, at least the aristocrats were. Then it's the only people that mattered to him that he thought they love me. There's nothing going to happen. So a lot of people were calling for Fidel and other rebels to be released in prison because there was a lot of these little uprisings and they were quickly squashed um, by the uh, very, very, harsh rule of the military. So he thought he would do something nice and he lets Fidel Castro out. So Castro, yeah, that's a big oops. (laughs) Castro takes off, goes to Mexico and begins immediately trying to come up with another coup uh, to take over the country. So he goes there, he meets, you know, his big buddy, another big name in the uh, revolution of uh, Ernesto Che Guevara and so he wages what becomes a guerrilla war for six plus years uh, against this dictatorship. And um, everything, it was a tough war. And um, really what the turning point was, and I know a lot of the Cuban Americans are probably not going to want to hear this, but at the same time, they know it's true. What really was the turning point? wasn't really that that Fidel was doing so well. Fidel was just one of the little groups that there was a whole bunch of them that were like all these big leaders of these little guerrilla, you know, military groups all over in the in the mountains and everything. And he just was one of many. And he was even one of the biggest. Uh, and they all kind of just did their little war. But the big thing was in 1958, the U.S. decides to just basically withdraw military aid to Batista. So now Batista's not getting his guns from the U.S. And before you know it, the rebels are winning. Winning so much that after six years, um, they basically take over. He leads a 9,000-strong guerrilla army into and takes control of Havana in 1959. That was the turning point. Castro makes himself prime minister his brother Raul becomes the deputy and Guevara becomes the third in command. Guevara being the only person, another little tidbit of information, the only way to get a U.S. to get a Cuban passport, uh, in Cuba is being born in Cuba. The only person that was not born in Cuba that had a Cuban passport was Che Guevara. So it's like one of those, uh, you know, trivia questions. That's the only guy that had one. He was the treasury, the the head of treasury. His face was, you know, out there. And in a lot of ways, he was more popular and um, loved than Fidel, which didn't sit too well with Fidel. Fidel was quick to, well, a lot of things happened over the years. But, um, you know, Camilo, one of his other top um, captains, lieutenants, generals, I guess was his official title, he, his plane disappears. He becomes a martyr. Che realizes that, you know what? I better leave because this island ain't big enough for the two of us. Uh, he goes on to his guerrilla wars and there's all kinds of, uh, rumors and, uh, things about what happened to him. Uh, movies made, uh, fantastic uh, stuff that, uh, leads to the imagination to think all kinds of things. But, yeah, people pretty much know what happened. But anyway, right. Castro becomes, um, he gains control of the country. Batista leaves, I remember, not that I was alive then, but 
on New Year's Eve, 1958, is when he left. As soon as he left, that was it. He took over the country. He established, uh, you know, the new republic. And um, that started the, that was a big turning point because at that point, a lot of the Cubans saw the writing on the wall where they originally, I think most, most Cubans, including a lot of the exiled, you know, self-exiled Cuban Americans really thought that Castro was going to be, you know, do the right thing by the country. And I, and I believe maybe initially, you know, maybe he, he did want to do the right thing, you know, because he was against everything that Batista was, was, uh, what he represented, which was being a very harsh, uh, dictator and uh, corrupt and everything else. And when he finally got the reins, uh, I think he said, well, you know what? I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, why should I not do the same? Now, he would never say that, of course, or, or the Cuban government, but clearly he lined his pockets first. Um, well, not only, you- not only did he line his pockets first, but he became just as cruel, if not more so than, than Batista. I mean, oh, absolutely. So absolutely. It, it's, I, it, I think it was more of a, a, for Castro, it was a, this is, I'm, this is how I'm going to get into power. It's, I am going to charm the people while fighting in their name against this, this regime, but then I'm going to have power and I'll do the same thing, except now it'll be me because I am the working class. I am the lower class and now I will be the upper class and I will have control and I I will do this and I will have everybody else under my thumb and I will make it the paradise that I want it to be. And not so much what the people want, but he did give the people what they want. I mean, that's, that, that is the, that is the, the harsh reality of it. The people wanted out from under Batista. They wanted, uh, you know, less U S influence. They wanted to be, they wanted to be more independent. Well, I mean, Castro checked all those boxes. He, he absolutely did. And, and I'd like to believe, and now you say maybe he had the plan all along. I'd like to believe that he went in with the right idea. Sure. Because, you know, there's a, there's a phrase, you know, absolute power corrupts. Oops, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Maybe he had the right intentions. I think you let's, give, let's give him the credit. Of I the think doubt. you have now, more faith him. in humanity than I do. I, I feel I see. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll concede the point to you because you're the Cuban expert. Like, I, if he, if you think he had that, then I, sure. I don't I, think he I did. do. I do believe. Anytime you go to war, anytime you fight, you have to really believe in your cause. I don't think he's thinking. Oh man, when I'm done, I'm gonna own this country and I'm gonna be super rich and I'm just gonna be the ruler of this. I, I don't believe to be able to fight and to be able to convey either that or he's the best salesman in the world I think as that's well. It. I think that and I, I I want you to think about some of the um most prolific and most famous dictators in history. They're all very eloquent. And they are all very passionate and they all believe in what they're selling their people. And in Hitler's case, that led to a very specific outcome uh, with Fidel Castro. It's no different. Uh, Manuel Noriega. I mean, the list goes on and on and on uh, as far as uh, uh, dictators and what they have done. And they are always fast talking, sweet talking charmers that tell the people exactly what it is they want to hear when they're coming to power. But when they actually get that power, 
It is literally on a dime things change. Well, all the people you mentioned were pretty transparent from the get-go, I think. And look, you're probably 100% right. Uh, You know, I mean, he became a violent and and worse in so many ways than Batista as he just took no prisoners and just made sure that he was the power and and he ruled that country for so many years with an iron mm-hmm. fist but to get in there you know with the the ideals i you know a lot of people i don't know i'd like to believe that people are want to be good. good yeah yeah are, are want to be good now there are just evil men in the world and and you know hitler comes to mind right away um but there has to be something in their brain that triggers them to become so evil uh and maybe they're not born i mean if you you know there's everything's not black and white no, you're right um, everything's not black and white there's certainly shades of gray in there but i mean when you're talking about some of the most vile reprehensible people on the planet that have done some of the most disgusting things to their fellow humans i mean fidel castro's pretty high up on that list he is i mean he's he's committed a lot of a lot of uh Bad things, man. Bad things. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of reading and, uh, you know, and, and here's the part that really that I, that I struggle with. I've met people in Cuba and, you know, nobody will talk or say a bad thing about, about Fidel. Heck, they won't even say his name. Yeah. They fear him so much for many years. And I'm talking up until recently, they will not even say his name. They call him the bearded one, or they'll make this, this, um, this symbol of taking your fingers and, and just, um, passing it around your chin. And that represents the bearded one. They won't even say the bearded one. That's how feared he was. But, uh, his ideas, he did dupe them, you know, on, I mean, I, I think inherently communism is, is, the only place it's good is on paper where it just, yeah. it doesn't work. No. And clearly it doesn't work. And, but yet, you know, the idea of a utopia where everybody is equal is just, it's, is, you know, it's a nice it, thought. It doesn't work. It's, it's a, a thought that will never happen no. uh, in this, in, in among human beings. No. Uh, it will not happen. But yeah, he was there. He was a really bad guy. Um, but he ran that country, and uh, now I'll go on to talk about Fidel's rule. So he gets in. He establishes himself as prime minister. A week after he's in power, uh, U.S. actually recognizes Cuba and uh, Fidel's new government. But in that time, in the first, um, you know, since 1959, up until the early 90s, an estimated 1.2 million Cubans fled to the United States. I mean, as soon as he got power, the people with money, they just, they knew they left. They They left. Well, he literally, what he did is everybody that lived there, he emptied everybody's bank account and left. I forgot what the amount was like $800. And you could add 10,000, 50,000, a million dollars. And you left, you were left $800 or whatever that amount. I could be wrong on that amount, but it was some very, very small amount. So he emptied everybody's bank accounts he basically then reappropriated all the lands, all the properties, and he started with his own uh, family uh, farm, you know, in in uh, 
in the countryside just to show the country, look, I'm even taking my own property away, so to speak. And so he took over the country and uh, everything there without payment. Um, now, he did offer to pay for the U.S. businesses that he uh, reappropriated, but the U.S. government wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. No, that would be so, legitimizing his government. Well, we did legitimize this government. We did. We officially recognized them as a, as the we the U.S. officially recognized Castro. When? Um, it, like early on, nineteen fifty nine. Absolutely, Jesus a week. Christ. A, actually, a month after he became prime minister, he came to the U.S. Shortly after, came in front of the UN. The whole bit. There's video of that. Um, so he did his. About the, so he did his best to pretty much snow like everybody. Oh, absolutely. He came in. The U.S. government's like, all right, we'll, we'll warm up to this guy. We'll make him our new Patsy. But he didn't give in, you see. Same thing with the mob. The mob said, all right, just another guy. We'll just, you know, they tried to say, okay, so here's the deal. This was the cut. This is what Batista got every week. We'll give you, what do you need? What, you know, we just want to continue going. And basically, Fidel said, look, you have 48 hours to get off my island. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and you know what? He won. Yeah. You know, the mob was gone. He banned all casinos. I mean, you got to think back in those days, uh, casinos, prostitution, and ga- I mean, it was just it, every it was rampant. So yeah, he, every trap you can think of in Vegas was there in Cuba. Well, they were there because they were the Vegas, like I said, before they were Vegas. Yep. Now- we were all for it until the U.S. government realized, oh, wow, this guy isn't going to play ball. We got to do something about it. So then the U.S. started to try to figure out a way to um, do business. You know, first of all, 1961, a short two years after he took over, the U.S. broke off all diplomatic relations with Havana. Why? Because the first thing Castro did once he realized the U.S., wasn't going to play ball and they weren't being nice. They said, well, they could come in any day and just take me over. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so to speak. So he went to to the Soviet Union and said, listen, big brother, these guys are going to take me over in the blink of an eye if you don't help me. So the the Soviet Union said, "Hey, why not? You know, we'll have a part of, of the of Russia right ninety miles off the shore of the U.S." And so, as Castro warmed up to the Soviet Union, the U.S. went the complete other way and was looking for a way diplomatically at first and somewhat politically to try to take back Cuba. Yep. Um, now we had a lot of exiled Cubans in Miami and wherever. And so then the project, the big thing that was known as the Bay of Pigs, um, started, uh, after Castro proclaimed Cuba a communist state and his big allies. So after they tried to overthrow him with the Bay of Pigs, which was a, a very, I mean, you could read books on that, um, on that chapter. It's, it's a very, very in-depth thing. You know, according to CIA internal documents, you know, there was uh, over 1,500 CIA-trained Cuban exiles that uh, failed in their invasion, and 1,200 of them were taken prisoner. Yeah. Now, they got tipped off, um, 
And he used that embarrassing moment to call for the Cuban people to defend the revolution because he just kicked the U.S.'s ass. Uh, yeah, and not and just so, that. Now he can, I, I was just going to say, like he can now <laughs> proclaim to the heavens, I have beaten the United States. And that's what he did. And and he knew they were coming. Some way, somehow he knew. And we were not allowed to do, a, at the time, this is all under Kennedy, and there's a great movie I watched. I think it was called 13 Days or something like that. Uh, I forgot what the name is. It was a really good movie. But anyway, it talked all about the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything that happened. The Bay of Pigs, when we were sent, when we were there, um, we were supposed to invade and do our thing backed by the U.S. government. Okay. It was supposed to look like it was only these exiled, yeah. um, you know, Cuban Americans that were trained in Nicaragua that took back their country and the U.S. had nothing to do. You know, it was, it was all for, but of course, not only did it fail miserably, but everybody knew that the U.S. was behind it, but we didn't, we, we were and we weren't. We were there. We had a, you know, a, a battleship sitting so many, you know, miles off the coast watching, you know, these guys getting slaughtered and, and basically captured. And they said to, um, to Kennedy, do we go in? What do we do here? And he basically said, stand down. And we didn't go in. Now, if we had really gone in full force U.S. Army, I mean, U.S. Uh, military, uh, forget it, about it. Yeah. you'd be Well, I think if that would have had, you would have been looking at thermonuclear war. I mean, at that point, it, it would have been worldwide destruction all the way around. I honestly think Kennedy made the right decision at the expense of the Cuban people. But you have to understand that during that time, and there's a lot of great books that were written and some conspiracy theories, some not so much. Um, a lot of these documents have come open. I spent a number of years reading a lot of the stuff during the Kennedy, the, the Kennedy years. One of them, my favorite books was called, uh, A Legacy of Secrecy. And that basically talked about how Kennedy was working with the Kennedy brothers were working with uh, the number three in command of Castro's, um, government and how he was going to overthrow Castro and we were going to take it over. And that's all that it's a fascinating story. And that would take an hour and of itself to explain, <laughs> but it was, but it was very, very cool. And the, the book tells just the prologue of the book basically explains it. The bottom line is that the, um, the mafia was behind that, uh, failed attempt and, and behind the assassination of, of um, Kennedy of Kennedy. Yeah. And there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I guess they just released a bunch more of these documents not too long ago. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's you know. a, a, as soon as a certain person dies and I don't remember the name of the gentleman he was, he was in, uh, he was in, he was in the government at one point and then he was a, a, a pundit at one point. And I don't think he's, 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 passed yet but as soon as that happens there's supposedly a lot of uh documents that are going to be uh able to be released <laughs> so i guess well, we'll see I, I but i mean who who knows um but so the cold war goes on right the bay of pig fails we embargo uh we, we put the embargo on cuba and that's been in place now since the well, 60s well, well wait a minute well, the, the missile the cuban missile crisis is what really ignited everything. You know, fearing the U.S. invasion, 
Castro then really gave the USSR carte blanche to basically deploy nuclear missiles to the island, which is what started the whole, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis. And again, movies about that and mm-hmm. books, countless books. But the crisis really was just uh, resolved, let's say, uh, when the U.S. actually the USSR agreed to remove the missiles in return for the U.S. Uh, removal of the nuclear missiles from Turkey. So that kind of put things on ice for a while after these, you know, tense negotiations and they kind of moved forward at the UN meeting and everything since then was kind of status quo. But 1965, Cuba's political party was renamed the Cuban Communist Party because it wanted to more officially align with the USSR since it was really modeled after their political party. Um, they became such but good buddies with with uh, the, the the Castro became like best buddy pals with Russia from sixty five all through seventies and eighties. Um, Cuba was like their best friend, and in fact, um, they started helping in in the seventies, like from seventy six through the eighties. Cuba starts sending all these troops all over Africa and helping all of Russia's little wars and backed ideas. Um, they were there in Angola. Um, they were, when they were against South Africa and Ethiopia when they wanted to defeat the, the Somalians. And that reminds me of something that you said uh, on a previous podcast where we, we talked a little bit about Cuba was that the main export of Cuba is its people. Absolutely. To this day. To this day, in so many ways, the way they make a lot of money. Well, right now, the, 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 if you look at the GDP of Cuba, number one was always remittance back from relatives that left. But the biggest export is their people. They just have lots of people and they fought a lot of wars uh, all over Africa, different countries. Um, so yeah, that's what they use. They use their resource, which was people. In return, you know, you have to understand they received four to six billion dollars a year in you know help you know from from the USSR they needed that money now until we're going to talk about the next period which is this the special period but just to finish up between the 70s 80s some other important key dates 1980 125,000 Cubans many of them were just convicts that were released they all there you know the Mariel Boatlift and uh they just, Castro got pissed. Everybody was trying to leave. And he said, you know what? Screw it. You want to go to, you want to go to the U.S.? He loaded a boat up, emptied his prisons, and anybody else who wanted to get on that boat, yep. boom, go, go to the U.S. And they've done movies and books about that. A lot of those people got thrown back. You know, they got thrown back to the, uh, to Cuba. I met a guy there who was one of the honest, most honest guys I met my, one of my first years there. And I was talking to him and he spoke English perfectly, but he looked very Cuban. I said, hey, how, how do you speak English so well? And he said, well, I lived in the U.S. for a number of years. I go, and you came back? And he's like, well, I kind of got thrown back. And he was honest. He goes, he goes, you know, I was there. I was part of the Marielle. I was doing some stuff. I got locked up. And after I got locked, locked up, they threw me back here and here I am. So the U.S. got rid of a lot of them, but a lot of things started happening in the 80s, um, you know, and Cuba became, tried to survive, you know, 
you know, with the USSR. And that was, they were, they were doing fine. They, they showed their support with their troops and, and, um, you know, they, they showed their support to, um, the little guys. Yeah. That was their whole thing. You know, uh, they supported Argentina, uh, with their dispute over Britain with the Falkland Islands. Uh, they, you know, they did all kinds of stuff like that. But the bad part was how do you survive without getting that four to six billion dollars? I was just going to say once, once the Soviet Union, uh, crumbled and the wall came down, like that, that was it. That, like Cuba's, Days have been, at least in my mind, the communist regime's days have been numbered since then. And honestly, I'm shocked that they've made it this long. Well, somebody always keeps stepping to take that place. USSR, once they stepped away, the period known as the special period, and they call it the special period mainly because of their extreme economic struggles that they uh, went through and endured. There were severe major shortages of fuel, paper, and food. Um, electricity was limited, like four hours a day. And even until 1993, Cubans were not even allowed to own or use U.S. dollars. They weren't even allowed to be in possession. If you were in possession of a dollar, you could be thrown in prison. I remember how scared they were. And that's not too long ago, you know. Yeah. But anyway, after the 91 collapse, the U.S. tightened its embargo on Cuba 93. They they smelled blood. The U.S. said, boy, we're going to win here. Now they don't have Russia. They tightened their embargo. There were some market reforms that were, were put in place uh, to help you know, to deteriorate their economy, um, but didn't work. Um, what, what Fidel did is he legalized the U.S. dollar and he transformed a lot of the state farms into semi-autonomous cooperatives, which are still in play to this day. And we'll talk about during the, the Cuba tobacco park because that has a big play there. And another big thing that did, they started to legalize private enterprise. At some point, remember, communist doesn't really work so well with entrepreneurs and capitalism. Right. But what you have there now is a total hybrid of that. So they were allowing certain private enterprises, certain uh, casa particulares, which was renting of your houses, um, which was paladars or these little restaurants. So basically, you cook in your home and you could you could offer your food for for money. Um, other small businesses. Um, what they did then in 94 is Cuba signed an agreement with the U.S., which allowed the U.S. to take 20,000 Cubans a year from, from Cuba. Cause Cuba, you know, they kind of looked the other way and these people would just flee to this day in these, you know, makeshift rafts and boats. Many of them killed in the water. They, they wanted to leave Cuba so bad because they had nothing to look forward to, yeah. starving in essence, where they were risking their lives to come to the U.S. And, you know, we had the period of the wet foot, dry foot. But the U.S. tried to prevent some of these, some of these, um, deaths and said, look, man, listen, if we just say we'll take 20,000 of, of your people, How's that sound? And Cuba, and Cuba said, okay, fine. And they established this lottery system. The problem was people were so fearful. I, I talked to families there that, you know, they didn't even want to you know, admit that they wanted to take the lottery or go in the lottery because they thought it was like a ruse or, or a trap that, oh, you want to leave Cuba. <laughs> right. You know, death to, death to you. Um, so a lot of, a lot of people were, were scared. 
So the lottery system, even though people took advantage of it, most people were scared to take advantage of it. But um, 96 was a big year. The Helms-Burton Act was established, and that was a permanent trade embargo. Before that, we had this embargo that was supposed to be a temporary thing that was signed by Kennedy that was kind of solidified by Congress in 1996. And that really happened because it was more of a response to Cuba's shooting down of the two U.S. aircraft operated by Miami-based Cuban exiles. And that started a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, yep. The 90s was kind of a bad time, man, you know, for, for Cuba in, in a lot, a lot of ways. Um, but 1998, Pope John Paul II visited Cuba, and that was a very promising and uplifting visit uh, by him. Uh, also, that same year, the U.S. eased some of the restrictions of being able to send money by relatives to Cubans, because prior to that, you couldn't. You couldn't even really visit. You had to like, uh, you could visit like once a year if you had a relative. They were pretty strict about going to Cuba. Um, 99, everybody probably remembers, um, Elian Gonzalez, that whole, it was in the news every day, if you, especially if you lived in Florida during that time, which I did. Um, that really was kind of a political thing that, Basically, this this child was picked off, uh, picked up off the uh, Florida coast um, when his boat with his mother and his stepfather they were trying to escape, and the boat capsized. And then this big, huge campaign by a Miami-based Cuban exile began, trying to prevent Elian from rejoining his father in Cuba yep. and wanting to stay with the relatives in Miami. Ultimately, they they gave him back in two thousand. Um, yeah, you know the they, courts. They, yeah, two thousand. The court said that they they had to take you back. And then there's this picture. I'll never forget this. There's a picture of an armed uh, soldier, basically inside the house with this little boy in his arms because they're taking him out of the house to to take him back to Cuba. Yeah, and they used that as such a political thing in Cuba, and they were like they acted like they won this big battle because they got him back and. Yeah, that was that was sad because yeah. you had a child that you know was basically uh, taken from his father. I'm sure his father didn't want to be there, but he you know kind of stayed back while the mom and the kid went. But then, of course, he became Castro's political puppet. And, but anyway, the 2000s started with things started going, in my opinion, the right way for Cuba and I think for the U.S. Uh, in 2000, the House of Representatives approved the sale of food and medicines to Cuba because. Believe it or not, they needed it. Yeah, you know, they still what, do. What I what I feel terrible about the the, the Cuban uh, people is that they are the victims, you know, of all this. You know, where you know it's sad to see what they've gone through, and um, this embargo definitely hurt the people of Cuba. I don't think it hurt the government. Obviously, they're still, in some ways, in my opinion, it empowered them, it isolated them, and allowed for his. His rule to uh, to continue. Well, and I think if you had opened it, also it allowed his rule to continue because he's able to to tell his people the the truth. Like the Americans are the ones who are doing this to you. They are. They oh yeah, are, the, the Americans are the bad guys. Yeah, they they are the cause of everything that's wrong. So it in makes Cuba. It, it it gives them an antagonist other than the guy who's holding you know the, the his foot on their throat. It, it, it so it, it made no sense to me for this embargo to continue anymore. Like once the the Russia was was gone, the Soviet Union was gone, and they were no longer giving them a ton of money. This embargo does nothing, nothing anymore, but absolutely 
hurt and hold back the people of Cuba? For the last couple of decades, I believe it's done nothing but help the, the, the current regime. Yeah. Um, I've seen such a change in so many ways with the onset of Americans visiting there with the, which that's a whole nother thing. You know, when they allowed internet in Cuba, which they were terrified of for good cause, because that will be their ultimate demise. Um, you know, democracy will, I believe, prevail there or a change in government at the very least, because people's eyes will be open where you don't have this basic isolation from the rest of the world, with the only exception being the tourists that come to visit. And mainly, of course, those were only, you know, the, um, you know, the Europeans that would visit and the Canadians. And so they would get some little insight from there, but yep. their television is completely censored. Uh, basically the news is, Hey man, you live in this, this utopia. Why do you care what, what's happening outside right. the rest of the world <laughs> and all these bad things? Cause you live in a place yeah. which is just fantastic and beautiful weather. And why you, you got everything you need. And of course it's not true, but that's, the propaganda that was, and they blocked so many things, you know, f- so the people were not told these things. And, but the people felt it. Believe me, they felt it when they didn't have food and the long lines. And there's a lot of things that were going on. So the 2000s, the, um, the Russians try to become more buddy buddy with the Q, with the Cubans again, because they realized, Hey, we just kind of left them hanging. And now we might lose them because the U.S. is warming up. They're starting to allow f- sale of foods. You know, uh, there's other things happening here. We're going to have to start trying to booster our, bilat- our, our bilateral ties. Yeah. So uh, Vladimir Putin goes there. He signs this whole thing. We're going to be nicey-nice. But then at the same time, Russia's talking with the U.S. And we're becoming friendly in the 2000s. And um, Cuba gets pissed because they shut down this um this this base the last base that they had a uh, military base in cuba and they got pissed you know but you know november 2001 us exports food to cuba for the first time after more than 40 years um and that really became because it was a humanitarian aid thing because the cuban government asked for help yeah. in the aftermath of hurricane uh, michelle but uh, when the Russian military base in Cuba was shut down in 2002, you know, things started uh, not looking so good, you know. Um, in April, diplomatic crisis after the UN hum- uh, Human Rights Commission again criticizes Cubans' right, uh, rights records. Uh, lots of things, a lot of people in Europe were going against Cuba. Cuba is not looking very good. Um, they started jailing dissidents. Uh, lots of things happened there. The U, even the EU, they, they, uh, stopped halting, you know, they, they halted all their, their visits, their, you know, official visits, that is, um, in protest for the country's human rights records. They're starting to get some, a lot of bad press. Um, lots of bad press. So Castro gets pissed. And, um, because in May of 2004, the U.S. adds more sanctions. Um, they restrict the uh, Cuban family visits, and more importantly, the cash remittance. That's big. Uh, and that just happened again under Trump, which really, really was big as well. So Castro, he fights back, 
by imposing a 10% tax on all U.S. Um, dollar peso conversions. And I know that all too well because basically the U.S. dollar and what used to be the, the convertible Cuban peso was one-to-one. And then you had a 10% FU tax that Castro implied. <laughs> and then there was a 3% bank exchange fee. So you basically lost 13 percent every time you changed one dollar so you'd get um, 87 cents uh for every dollar yes yep. yep and it was fixed so you, you always knew what it was going to be so every dollar exchange you got 87 cents january 2005 it resumed diplomatic uh contacts with the u the, with the eu which were uh frozen from 2003 because of this whole dissident crackdown um then july of 2005 you had hurricane dennis you know, widespread destruction, 16 people dead. That was not good. Uh, not good for Cuban tobacco crops as well. But then you start to see the, the downfall of President Fidel Castro. He starts undergoing different uh, gastric surgeries and temporarily hands over control of the government to his brother. And then he starts not making a lot of appearances. He wasn't around for the... Uh, 50th anniversary of his return to Cuba. So everybody's like, oh my God, there was rumors that Fidel was dead and because nobody had seen him. Um, lots of things were going on. He never made his uh, Havana annual May Day parade. Yep. So, th- so they were starting to say, oh man, you know, 2007, first time since 1959, revolutionary, uh, the Revolution Day was celebrated without Fidel Castro. So people are talking. People are talking big. Um, and then finally, Castro himself reads in a letter on Cuban TV that he does not intend to cling to power indefinitely and that he plans on giving, uh, handing over the reins to his brother. 2008, Fidel Castro announces his retirement and his brother Raul Castro takes over as president. And he, I remember the, this time very well because it's starts when, I, when I'm starting to be there. And I remember the speech and what he was saying. And I'm like, oh my God, could these things really happen? He, he said a lot of great things. He was going to do all these things. And then I think basically Fidel heard about it and said, no, you ain't going to do any of those things. You know, kind of slapped him on the hand because he was still running the show. Yeah. But he did, he did remove um, some bands. One of the big bands was computers and ownership of mobile phones. Before that, you weren't allowed to own a mobile phone. I got my first Cuban chip in early 2009, and I had the same number uh, since then. I think I lost it now because you have to keep it active, you know, once within a year. And having not been there for over a year and a half, I think. Uh, well, anyway, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> Scratch that from the uh, from the podcast. Gotcha. Uh, it's not important, but it makes me remember my old number. But anyway, um, he, he some other things that he did that made a lot of impact. He basically announced that he was going to abandon the salary equality thing, um, where basically you were going to be paid different salaries depending on your position. Whether you were a uh, rocket scientist or you know a street sweeper, you were basically paid the same thing. He changed all that the salaries were still minimal, minimal, like you couldn't live on them anyway. But you have to understand that this was seen as a very radical departure, you know, from the orthodox Marxist economic principles that have been observed there since 1959. So that was a big change. So 
the EU then lifts its own diplomatic sanctions and things start to get nicer. Now, in July of that same year, in an effort to boost Cuba's lagging food production and reduce their dependence on food imports, the government relaxes the restriction on the amount of land available to private farmers. That's a big move. However, again, I think it's more symbolic than anything else because, you know, they say, okay, you can have your land back. Now it's officially yours again, where before it was all Cuban. But tomorrow they can go back and say, you know what, uh, we'll take that back. And they've done it, you know, many times. So, yeah, in, in, in name only, it's back in your name. You know right. What I mean? But they were trying to do anything to boost, you know, Cuba's lagging food production. Um, and they reduced their, you know, their importance to all this extra, um, you know, t- uh, relief that they really needed. But then again, September of that year, another hurricane, Gustav, and then Ike, more storm, more damage, uh, the most in Cuba's uh, recorded history, over 200,000 left homeless. And that's a big thing because one thing I have to say, unfortunately, in this country where we have abundance of many things, we still have a problem with homelessness. But one thing in Cuba that I never saw homeless people, I mean, I saw homes that were not very nice, but at least they had a roof over their head one way or the other. Right. So that's a big thing, you know. But the other thing that happened, which started an ongoing to this day thing, is that um, this state oil company actually were estimating that there was over 20 billion barrels in offshore fields. And offshore fields, like, and they started, uh, you know, they had, now they have the Chinese there mining, you had the Russians mining, because they believe they have so much oil, you know, in their area offshore that there'll be more money than they could possibly ever want. But basically, since Cuba stepped away, Venezuela kind of took its place and, uh, didn't give them cash because they didn't have cash, but they gave them a lot of oil with a deal between, you know, uh, Maduro, not Maduro, before Maduro was uh, Chavez. Chavez was giving them, you know, I don't know how many millions of dollars in, in aid, um, because of oil. In return, Cuba was paying with, uh, 100,000 doctors that they would export yeah. again, people being the crop. And, um, that went on for a long time and under Maduro's, rule, he continued it because I think he wanted some of that same whatever was going on there. Um, people's pockets were definitely being lined on both sides. Uh, look, at what's happened with Venezuela today. But anyway. Um, well, I'm, and I'm afraid that that's what's going to happen to Cuba if ch- change doesn't come. Yeah, well, the big problem now, and it's a whole nother story, is the Chinese influence and how China has now stepped in kind of taken place. They have a lot of money, they have power, and they seem to love Cuba as well, including their Cuban cigars. But um, if it's really up to the U.S. at this point to kind of, you know, make it a big deal. Like, um, you know, Trump, you know, supported the exiles and the anti-Castro movements and the Cuban Americans that were anti-Castro. And That's great. I understand, you know, you came to this country, everything was taken from your family, uh, under harsh conditions, your, your, your ancestors, your family was killed. Bad things happened to you. I understand. But I do believe the future of your country is at huge risk now because you have other parties at play, mainly the Chinese and other influences. And if the U.S. doesn't, 
there's just, I don't see how the U.S. can allow China to take over that country. And the reality is, if we don't do something about it, they will. Because they now are giving them plenty of money. And they're not like all these other countries that have loaned money to Cuba and then, oh, it's okay, guys. You're a third world country. We'll just kind of forego that. No, the Chinese don't believe that. They're not very forgiving. We will give you this money. Oh, what? You can't pay? All right, listen, we'll give you some extended terms, but that's the best we can do. Then we're going to have to have a serious talk. Well, that serious talk's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. And I just hope that we as an American people see that 90 miles off our shore, we cannot allow Russia nor China to be there. So we need to take a very, very big uh, important role. in. Well, absolutely. I mean, the strategic importance of, uh, of Cuba shouldn't be understated, uh, but at the same time, like I feel like Cuba needs to make those the the people, and we'll talk about them in the next episode. But the people of Cuba need to make that decision for themselves, with no external wait, wait, influence. Wait, 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 wait! Time, time out, time out, time out. The problem is the people of Cuba would greatly want that. They they don't have a voice, but that's they what, have no voice. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like they need to, the people of Cuba need to make those decisions without any external influence of China or the external influence of the United States and figure out well, what direction they want to go. I, I mean, I, I really do. And I don't, and what I mean by that is, is, is this not forgetting the, the uh, uh, strategic importance of Cuba, but the, the, the people right now are still, they're still under a communist regime. Like Raul is no longer like, I, I don't mean to fast forward, but Raul's no longer in power. Um, he stepped down. Uh, the communist yeah. the Communist Party is still in power there, and until that changes, they're they're going to be chummy chummy with China. How do you see that changing? Uh, the people, the people have to make that change. Uh, it's going to have to be. Uh, look, we saw a little bit of this last last uh, this last year. And do you know what the aftermath of what happened last year? I'm sure we're going to get into that in another podcast. It was not pretty. Not pretty. No, and I get that. They want to get, but what needs to happen is what was continuing to happen with outside influence, with allowing Americans to travel freely, with allowing more free trade. That's going to make them want and desire and risk their lives more to get that freedom, which they so desperately want. But you have to understand, 2008, which is what we were last talking about, their economy collapsed. Their growth was nearly half to 4.3%. Things were just going bad. Um, and then the Bush administration, they, they, uh, they finally, they lifted the, the, uh, some of these restrictions that were put in by the Bushes, you know, without sending money back. Now money's coming in. Now, there's the other side of the coin that says when you send money, when you go there and you travel, I mean, there's a lot of people in this industry, meaning the, the cigar industry, that are very against anybody traveling to Cuba. And their, their reasoning, I understand it. It's like, okay, we don't want to put money in the, in the government's pockets. But, you know, when you're there and you see it firsthand, when I go there, when I do my tours, and my tours are very anti-political, I make a point um, I'm there for the Cuban people. Yeah. Support of the Cuban people is the exact title of what the license category is because we're there to support the Cuban people by putting money into their pockets directly. 
Um, yeah. Does it eventually funnel? Does it eventually all get back to the, to the government? Yeah. Is it that when you, when you fly on an airplane, there's taxes that are imposed and that feeds the government? Yes. Is the government getting money? Yes. But the people are getting money too. So well, when you I starve think, the government. I think more important than that, Nick, the people are getting exposure. Like you said that's earlier. That's the most important yeah. thing. That's the me. I mean, the funniest thing is when the internet thing happened, uh, I was talking to all the Chinese um, contractors that were there that were, they were setting the cables and doing the stuff. They had this cruise ship that was parked in the, in the harbor there and they worked there. They lived on this cruise ship and they basically were wiring the whole country with internet, you know, the infrastructure. And when they were finished, because uh, I could talk about the internet there over, you know, my <laughs> personal experiences over the last 10 plus years. But when they finally put internet in and, you know, we, we had good internet over in Cuba for two years, the Cuban government refused to turn the switch and turn it on because they were terrified. They didn't want to open Pandora's box. And they're right because that is the problem. Now, they're not as restrictive, even though they do censor and restrict the internet there. Not as bad as Saudi Arabia, in my opinion, which I have a lot of experience with. And that's a whole nother story. Right. Um, but yet we're like, hey, Saudi is great. Yeah. Well, uh, but, it's all but, it's all about money. And it's all about what you can do for me now. You know, there, there's so many things we did against the Cuban. People I, I agree. And the Cuban government, because they can't offer us oil, they can't offer us money in, in those terms. It's very frustrating. And again, I, I don't want this to be political and I don't want to hit, sit there and talk in or against anything other than just, I feel terrible for the Cuban people and they are the ones that are suffering there and they are just people that need, and they're so close to us here in the U.S. and, and they're a very, uh, very smart people, a very hardworking, um, and I just think that they really could flourish if they had the right things are changing there, but it's, you know, there's a lot of new economic reforms, uh, that have been going on over the last 10 years, but it's still not enough. It's no. still not enough. No. Uh, and I think, you know, in the next episode, we're really going to look at the people of Cuba and hopefully, uh, give you folks a, a a different perspective of the people of Cuba and, and a more personal perspective uh, because, Nick, you have uh, such a great history with them. Like, you you really do love the culture. You love them as a people. Um, and so I think getting your perspective on the people of Cuba will help us kind of understand Cuban cigars, uh, Cuban culture, and, and where they're at now. And obviously, we just talked about where they've been. All right, so we should wind this down and we'll have to summarize. There's a whole nother chapter that happened basically, you know, from the onset of uh, the changes that went on. There's a lot of things that happened in the 2000s, you know, the, the years that I were there. I know them personally. Um, I could offer a lot of insights with, with some of the stuff there. But in a nutshell, basically, after Roll took over, things started to change a little by little. Um, the the rest of the world kind of embraced them more, started giving them more money. So our embargo doesn't have the same impact anyway. It hasn't for years. Right. So they're getting just about everything they want. Would it be easier to get it from the U.S.? Yeah, but there needs to be a reapproachment with the U.S. And things have started, you know, started in 2014 in a very surprise development 
you know, Obama and uh, Raul announced this, hey, we're going to normalize diplomatic relations that were separated or severed for 50 years. You know, they established the um, the embassy again. It was, it was just an office of interest for the last 50 years. Um, in 2015, it was January of 2015, Washington eased some of the travel and trade restrictions on Cuba. There was a lot of things that happened that uh, in 2015 were the reopening of both embassies. You know, there was that famous... Uh, Video uh, news clip of of Obama in Cuba with Raul. Yep. Um, there was a lot of things, but you know what? Whether you're Republican or Democrat, you know uh, the one thing I did like was that things were going the right way, in my opinion, of easing of the life for Cubans. You know, and and then of course the other side says that no, it was it was worse, and you know we're allowing them to flourish and. I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue. I just want it to end. You know, I just want them to be able to move on as a people. And uh, it's just so sad that it's 90 miles, you know, off our coast. A lot of things started happening. I even had a a credit card from a U.S. bank that was authorized in Cuba. Wow. And that was great. And that was great because, you know, every time you had to go, you had to bring, you know, wads of cash. And that was always a pain in the ass. And then the credit card was difficult at first because it wouldn't work and it worked some places. And then of course that was cut off. So we've gone back a little bit, you know, um, from, from the more open way that it, and I thought it was progressing the right way. And after Fidel's death, um, in 2016, I thought, wow, you know, things may start even getting better. Um, but, uh, you know, then Trump, kind of overturned a lot of Obama's policy. And I think he did that for political reasons because I know for a Absolutely. fact he was he had people over there looking for you know for business reasons to be there and and some of the things that he changed, I mean, you know, there you had the uh Sheridan Corporation that opened up a hotel there operating a hotel and then Trump says oh, no more. Yeah. It's like, well, we just spent a few uh, okay. And it's like, man, you know, like <laughs> You know, I just saw things going in the direction of democracy. Yeah. You know, people there were, were doing good things. And you would and, imagine uh, that now that that Trump's, you know, his administration's gone and we've got the Biden administration, which was, I mean, he was the vice president during uh, Obama uh, Obama's administration. He hasn't overturned anything that Trump has done with Cuba. Nothing. Well, the reason is, uh, I understand his um, his caution, because right now there's a big problem with Venezuela. And another problem we're having, and a lot of people don't talk about it, you know, with, with our industry, is Nicaragua. Potentially, mm. the U.S. government, you know, if they start doing some type of, can you imagine if they put some kind of sanctions on Nicaragua, <laughs> what would happen to the tobacco? You know, but uh, like I don't want to give the government any ideas, but if you want to really put a stranglehold on, on tobacco uh, in the U.S., like that's how you do it is you you start putting sanctions on Nicaragua. And then literally the only places we could get, you know, uh, the tobacco is, is Costa Rica and uh, Peru and Honduras, uh, the Dominican. Uh, I, I mean, you put you would put a hurting on the tobacco economy if they if, if you did that. Well, listen, 
it's not and it's not out talk it's not outside the realm of possibility it. is no, it they don't talk about it much but you, this is going to be an interesting year politically for Nicaragua and yeah that would be bad for our industry it would be bad for the people of Nicaragua there's a lot of bad things that can come out of it um would we, you know, pivot like we did with Cuba? Yeah. I mean, Nicaragua has become very important to us. Um, Nic- probably become the most important to the American market. Um, where we used to be the Dominican Republic, it would have to shift somewhere else. You know, you have a lot of other countries there that can produce some really good tobacco, Ecuador, um, Honduras. You know, there's some really other big oh, countries absolutely. that could step up more production. Um, but, you know, but you would see, I, I mean, that would put, I mean, just to bring it back to cigars for a minute, that would put a lot of companies in the position of having to change a lot of their blends and a lot of the more popular blends here in the United States would overnight go away. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of companies would be devastated, devastated. Some of the biggest players now are all based in Nicaragua, yep. and that would devastate them and this industry. Not to mention, there'd be a huge shortage of tobacco. And when you're um, dealing, and when you're dealing with things like sanctions, and it's all politically motivated, things like legislation, uh, and the you know the things that the PCA does and the CAA, like none of that matters because it's just they fucked up. We're going to this is how we're going to deal with their fuck up, and you're just kind of caught in the crossfire. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I don't know um, how much longer you want to go, James. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a 30-minute thing. I did, too. And, uh, <laughs> we, have, we have covered a lot, Nick, uh, uh, the history of Cuba from from its inception to, to its modern history uh, and, and everything in between. And I think that's a this is a good starting point. And I may, you know, uh, I may break this episode up into two episodes because – it was a lot. It was a lot of information. It was a lot of good information, and it gives us a good starting point. Uh, and next time, Nick, we're going to have you back, Professor Nick Sears. He's going to be the co-host for this uh, Cuban series, and we're going to be talking about the Cuban people. And it'll probably be a little bit more cigar-centric as we go along on this series, guys. Uh, but uh, episode two or three, depending on if I break this episode up into two, uh, it's going to be the people of Cuba, followed by the history of the Cuban cigars. And it's that after that, uh, the people of Cuba, we really start to dive into the Cuban cigars. Uh, but this, uh, you know, if you don't know the history of Cuba, how can you appreciate fully uh, the cigars and the products that come out of Cuba? So, uh, Nick Sears, I appreciate you taking the time today uh, to uh, give us all of your information, share your expertise with us. Thank you. I love, like I said, love talking about Cuba, love talking about cigars. And there's a mic here. I will do it. And uh, you're going to do it again <laughs> uh, next month. Uh, so look forward to uh, episode two of our series, uh, the Cuban series uh, with Nick Sirius of LH Cigars. That's going to do it for us for this episode. Join me next time where... Uh, you know exactly what we're going to be talking about in this series. It's going to be Cuban cigars, and we're going to have Nick Sears from LH Cigars with us. Until then, guys, stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Visit simplystogies.com for the latest articles and reviews. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest in video content. And please rate and review Simply Stogies on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. 
You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. If you have a question or suggestion for James or would like to be on the show, please send an email to info at simplystogies.com. The views and opinions expressed by James and his guests are their own and do not reflect those of Creative Brain Candy or their affiliates. 